So I got to give you a warning right off the bat. I don't know how the sermon ends. That's why you're like, oh, no. You're like, oh, no. Oh, don't, don't let that stir you up. In fact, uh, I'm going to ask you to participate in the sermon. Don't worry. You don't have to do any public speaking. I'll navigate that part. What I would like for you to do while I'm sharing with you what I believe is a word from the Lord, I want you, uh, when you get distracted or you just think about it, that you would pray a simple prayer, God, meet with us. Okay? You don't need to do it out loud. In fact, if you do, I'll get distracted. So how about you just do that privately? But you just, when you think of it, maybe it's when your phone buzzes and you're like, what's that? And all that. Or maybe it's when someone coughs and you're like, what's that? And I'm going to ask a favor is that during this sermon, when you remember to do so, that you would just say, hey, God, God, meet with us. Okay? Deal? All right. I want to talk to you about something, but I got to set it up. Do you remember when you probably were in elementary school? And you had a spelling contest, a spelling bee. Do you remember these things? Well, uh, any time, I was in a class one time, and the English teacher, or teacher said, uh, we're going to have a spelling contest. And if you don't know much about me, you say the word contest, I'm in. You don't even have to finish the sentence. Just contest, all right, sign me up, let's do this. I love competition. So when the teacher was like, we're having a spelling competition, it wasn't because I was like, oh, finally, I am a, an amazing speller. It's like, I just must win. I got to win. Let's do this. And so... If you don't know how this worked, if you didn't do it in school, you know, you kind of would line up and teach you would have you spell a word. And then when you got it wrong, you, you sat back in your, your, at your desk. Some of you are super introverted and you wanted to get back to your desk as fast as you could. So you, you didn't even spell the word be right. It's fine. For those of us who were competitive, it didn't matter our personality. We were like competitive. So I was like, I got this. I got this. I made it into the top five that first year. And I was like, let's dominate the world now. Let's do this. What else is is before us? But I didn't win it. I misspelled the next word. I don't remember what the word was. And it was then my, I had to go sit at my desk and watch the rest of the people do well. And I began to realize I wouldn't have spelled any of those words that you're saying. I made it further than I should have kind of a moment. The next year, teacher brings it up again. Hey, we're going to have a spelling contest. If you're familiar with this, the National Spelling Bee. As a kid, I began to get word of this thing, this National Spelling Bee. Again, not because in my heart of hearts I'd always dreamt of being a good speller. It's just national contest, I'm in. That year, didn't even make the top 10 in class. The words got significantly more difficult, and I was distracted by sports and girls. So, I sat down early that year. Would you like to know why the real reason I sat down? Because I wasn't as good as I needed to be as a speller, okay? I'm going to fess up to you. I am not a good speller. I read books, yes. I don't spell words well. It's just how it's always worked. I can tell you Dan Snyder, I'll never forget, he won the thing every stinking year. And when he would spell words, I'm like, I can't even pronounce what you just spelled. And I begin to see the distance. Maybe you remember this experience in, in elementary school. You begin to see the gap between you and the one winning the contest of whatever contest you were in. I wasn't on a good enough spell. Well, that trend continued in sports. I, I grew up wanting to be a major league baseball player. 
I knew in my heart that God wanted me to play professional sports, specifically baseball, so I could be rich, well-known, and play a game the rest of my life. I knew that this was God's will for my life. And so, and it began playing out. Of course, that begins in sixth grade. Sixth grade was a great year, and Little League was awesome. Next year, seventh grade, equally good, and I got selected to try out for the All-Star team. And I'm like, I see what you're doing, Lord. Just, <laughs> just lead the path. Lead the path. I show up to tryouts for the all-star team. <laughs> I was atrocious. I was so, so bad. I, I couldn't do anything. But part of the reason was I was around guys that I would played against and didn't really know them, but I began to notice a difference between me and most of the other guys there. They were much better than I was. And I began really like I was probably like the, the Mr. Irrelevant, the last pick of the all-star. Hey, maybe he'll make it. And I obviously was not near as good as them. Some of you are messing with what I'm, you, I'm saying things to you. Let me say it. I was not a good enough baseball player. I was not a good enough speller. I could go down and spend the rest of the sermon telling you lots of areas of my life that I do not compare to other people in the worst of ways. So I can tell you that I, I didn't measure up. And in our culture, for me to say out loud, some of you are like, oh, David, but you're nice. It's going to be okay. You're good enough to us, David, right? Like, and you begin to feel like you got to soothe me. But I'm telling you, no. And I watch sports to these days, and now I'm getting to the age going, even if I wanted to and thought I could, I'm too old for it now. And you begin to realize it's an adult lesson. Sometimes you're supposed to learn as kids, there's things that you're not good at. There's facets of life that you don't measure up. And our culture hates that I just said that. Because we live in an environment like, no, 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 no. You're, you're good just as you are. You're perfect just as you are. Be you. And it's messing not only which is how kids are learning to do life. It's, it's messing with your approach to God. We as a church are opening up uh, what is called the Bible or the Word of God. It's what God inspired and put together, known as the Bible, and we're learning that the Bible actually walks us through 10 of life's biggest questions. And perhaps one of the biggest questions these days is this, why doesn't God accept me just as I am? Why don't I measure up? Some of us are like, I thought I did. And you're worried now. Don't worry. We'll walk through this. But some of us just think, well, God loves us, so God made me, so then it doesn't really matter what I do or how I do it, just as long as I'm me, I'll just be me. I'll go after what I crave, what I desire, what I want, and he loves me enough that he's going to welcome me into the gates one day, and so I'm just, I'm fine as I am. Meanwhile, God never said that. You can't find it. You can find that God loves you, but we live in an era now that says love is affirming of everything. Love just permits everything. And so you and I are struggling because we want to spend paradise with God. And God has said very clearly, we don't measure up. Some of you are like, I think I might back out of this right now. I'm going to go to the bathroom right now. I'm a, let, me, let me do an object lesson. You okay with an object lesson? Uh, object lessons, by the way, are never perfect, but they'll hopefully get us to where we need to go. Start off with how imperfect it is. This is God. No, this is not what God looks like. Just This is clear, pure water. 
if you've never read the Bible, it opens up describing uh, creation, but it, it starts off with God's at the beginning, always been at the beginning. When the beginning happened, he already was. God is perfect. God is what the Bible would call holy, set apart, sanctified, pure. This is God. If you keep reading, you're going to learn that God makes people. Again, you are not a cup, but in this instance, you are. So God would speak in and create man, and he would create woman, making them in his own image. And if you read, you'll learn that they coexisted in the garden, in paradise, walking with each other. The Bible even details, going on walks with God. Literally, I can't imagine. But if you keep reading, you'll learn that something happened. Even though they were holy, sanctified, set apart, pure, they have this encounter with the devil. The devil's like, hey, I really don't want you listening to everything God says. I've got some news for you. And they took the bait, and they actually followed uh, not God's direction, but Satan's direction, and brought into their souls and their lives in this world sin. I was like, how do I example sin? Well, I thought of something extreme that Katie was not happy that I bought into our house. Uh, rat poison. Uh, if you want to know, like, is this really rat poison? Is it, I mean, is it, yes, because this is how I think. They introduced sin, rat poison. I'm paying attention to not breathing this in. Anyone want to drink? I hope the answer is no. The problem is now you have Adam and Eve living in the garden, and they've welcomed in sin. No longer set apart, no longer pure. Again, this is going to mess with some of your worldviews. No longer are they considered holy. No longer do they look like, in the sense, spiritually like God. So God's like, this is a problem because unholy cannot coexist with holy. You just know science enough that they can't, they, they can't coexist. So God is so good, so powerful, and so pure. He had to do something, and you'll read it in your Bible. I'm just going to fill in the blanks. He actually banishes them from paradise, the garden, and puts a guard there. Saying, you can't re-enter this place. And some of us are like, well, I bet I can, I can do a quick move around, around the, the blazing swords and everything, and I can get to God. If you could have even done that, being in the presence of holy, you would have died immediately. I don't know the science behind it, but you might have just dissipated. You just would be gone. You couldn't get there. Now, some of you are struggling with this. I know this because I know we don't teach this well. You're like, wow, okay, so God is holy, and I get, David, that I've, I've made mistakes, I've sinned, and, and, I, and, I, and I, get that, I get that I've got sin in my life, but what's the big deal? And the reason many of us say this is no big deal, I'm talking to you about sin, about your unholiness, my unholiness, what's the big deal? Because we in our culture compare ourselves to the next person, and we're like, I don't look worse than they do. You know what your neighbor does, and you're like, they're worse if you have a brother or a sister, you know that they're worse than you, right? You're like, this is easy, but this is what our culture is doing, and you may not like what I'm going to tell you, but I'm going to tell you how God sees. God is not comparing you and I to each other. God is comparing you and I to him, and you and I have a problem. We can't access God. We have lost in our culture that you and I do not do this with our lives. You and I oftentimes don't wake up and say, how do I compare to God? Because we're like, but that's God. 
But all throughout Scripture, what God has done all throughout history is saying, but in order to be with me, you have to be holy like me. Creates a problem, doesn't it? So far, this is depressing, is it not? Uh, So what do we do? If you've ever dreamt, maybe you do right now, maybe you're seeking God, thinking about God, is he real, and you're processing, what do I think about God? But if you have any kind of craving of spending eternity, like post-death, with the Almighty God, walking in paradise as he describes it, and you're like, I want that, then you have got to wrestle with your holiness because it is actually unjust of God and impossible for you and I to access God. It's, if we tried it, even if he allowed it, if we said, okay, if God's like, cool, no big deal, let's do this. You know what this is? This is right now. It's no different than the world. So I think here, uh, your holiness is a big deal to God because you're a big deal to God. And look at me very closely. I'm, this has so much weight in my soul right now. I beg of you to care about your holiness. I implore you to consider that even though this culture says that you can do whatever you want whenever you want as long as you don't hurt anyone else, that perhaps what you're doing is hurting yourself and perhaps you're neglecting your very soul and we've bought a lie of the devil. You and I must consider that holiness, being set apart, being sanctified, being pure, matters to us. And please don't wait until you're close to your funeral to care about this. Because you might not get the luxury to think about it. The Bible tells us this, just so you know it's not my word. I thought it would bring us in the scripture. Leviticus, this is the Old Testament. If you're new to the Bible, uh, really near the front of this. For I am the Lord your God. Okay, so far so good. You must consecrate yourselves and be holy. Right there, you're reading it in the Bible. These are not my words that God told the people, you need to be holy because I am holy. Hopefully now you get a glimpse of why he's saying this. He's not saying this because, oh, I've got this religion all mapped out. It's going to be wonderful. He wants to spend forever with you in the only way possible because he's holy is for you and I to be holy. If you keep reading, verse 45, for I, the Lord, And the one who brought you up from the land of Egypt, that I might be your God. Therefore, you must be holy because I am holy. Which demands a question. How can a holy God dwell with unholy people? Please hear my words. I'm going to say this kindly. Is God just going to look over our sin and not care about it? Are we damned to hell with no option? Is it about trying to be as good as possible? You know how that doesn't work, right? You're like, I know how to do this, David. I'm just going to be a really good person. Okay, so you're going to add some goodness to your life? Cool. Anybody want to drink? You see how illogical that is? How much water do I need to add to this to where you're cool with drinking the rat poison? The answer should be, uh, never. But do you see what we're trying to do? If right now you're in the state of mind going, I've just got to be nice enough and good enough, and I hope that my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds, and so so that'll, that'll make it. No, no, that doesn't fix it. You can't do enough good. Something has to happen. 
And I would tell you, our only hope is God. He's the only one who can fix our eternity problem. How can a holy God dwell with unholy people? God intervened and he provided two solutions. What I would call a temporary solution and a permanent solution. The permanent solution I'll talk to you more about next week. Sorry, you got to come back. But unfortunately, in the Christian world, in Christian circles, in church circles, we jump to Jesus, which Jesus is amazing. I cannot wait to preach next week. But for you and I to understand what Jesus has done in your life, for you and I to understand grace and God and how much he loves you and I, we can't go to the permanent solution, even though we're like, I would like to go to the permanent solution. You've got to understand what God did first. And if you know what God did first, which I will not be shocked if 90 to 95% of us have never heard what I'm about to preach to you, you've got to know the temporary part to value the permanent part. You got me? So to do this, I'm going to talk to you about the temporary part, the tabernacle. This is the tabernacle, okay? Now, I thought it was relevant at the time that we're at right now to show you an American football field so that you see the size. I want you to see the size of the tabernacle. If you're a camper, you probably have noticed that there's tent stakes kind of thing. This is a temporary setup. This setup would have been torn down, moved, set back up, extreme specifics to how this was done, how big it was, how wide it was, what was included, all orchestrated by God saying, do this. This is God's approach to dealing with our sin and unholiness. So I could make you stare at the picture. And if you're like me, when I was in class, I was like, that's neat. I bet it was important. What else, right? And wow, do we live in a different kind of world these days, sometimes in the best of senses. Um, What I now can do, instead of showing you a picture, thanks to virtual reality, which at times I've said you shouldn't be a part of it. I changed my mind. I was wrong. There's some cool virtual reality stuff. And so what I'd like to do, if you're willing, I want to take you into a video game and teach you about the temporary solution. So this is, I don't think this has ever been done before, at least that I'm aware of, so we'll see how this works. Uh, yeah, some of you are weirded out for a second. Deal with the weirdness. Remember, pray. God, meet with us. Okay, <laughs> pastors, pastors taking us to virtual reality. You don't know what you think about it yet, but... W- Let me explain to you what the head of your household would have to do. You send, your family send, you got stuff you don't want to talk about publicly, and some you're okay talking about publicly. The head of the household, once sin happened, would show up to this outer fence. What would happen would be, though, you had to stop right at the beginning. The head of the household would be greeted by the priest. The priest uh, would come out and not allow you in. What you would have brought with you would have been an animal. Most likely, most commonly, would have been a lamb. You would have brought that lamb with you. That lamb is going to be sacrificed. The priest would come out and probably greet you, 
but more importantly, would look at the lamb that you brought. The priest, not your standards, not anyone else's standards, but the priest would evaluate the lamb based on God's standards. Would actually look at the lamb, physically examine it, make sure that it is spotless, that it is perfect, there are no blemishes, making sure that what you brought, listen, where we started, would measure up and be good enough. If the priest deemed the lamb good enough, he would then walk you in. And would walk you in, as I learn how to do this, would walk you in, and right here, this is, they're not here, but would have been called slaughtering tables. I'm going to be careful with this, okay? You don't need me to try to be overly demonstrative. I can say the word slaughtering tables, and I think you already know exactly what plays out. You would have brought your lamb along with walking by the priest over to these slaughtering tables, and you would have laid the lamb on the table, and the priest would have taken over from there. However, there would have been some significant moments. As a leader of the home, you know that this moment is where you will gain significant forgiveness. You will have this moment, but you are not in the presence of God like you would ever feel it. I wonder what the emotions would have been. Uh, He would have seen uh, the holy place right there knowing he can't go there. Knowing that this is major stuff. I want you to be overwhelmed with what I'm about to share with you. So what would happen is the lamb would be laid onto the slaughtering table and four words play out in this moment. I want you to see these, these four words. Uh, the head of the home would have known that this was a temporary solution. Just like you and I, um, think about your life. You're likely, even if today you say, you know, God, would you forgive me for next week, you might likely need to say, hey, God, um, so I messed up again. Uh, he knows in this moment that this is a temporary thing. He knows that this is probably not the first or last time that he'll be bringing a lamb in for sacrifice. It would have been substitutionary. Weird word, I know. But he would have known that this lamb, by permission of God, because death has to happen when sin happens, he knows that this lamb, ordained by God, would be allowed to be the substitute for himself and his family. God is allowing this. A perfect animal. This would be an atoning moment where this isn't just an act of religion where an animal gets killed that some of you are like, I don't know if I like this. This would be atoning. This would cover the sins of the head of the household and the whole family. And I didn't want you to miss, of course it's a sacrifice. This head of the household would leave the tabernacle without the lamb that he brought in. The most perfect lamb that maybe he had ever seen or raised. I don't want you to miss the altar there. There are graphic parts of it. Yes, there is blood all over. The lamb would have been cut up, placed onto the fire, and would have been consumed by the fire, being the final part of the sacrifice, the head of the household knowing that as he sat here, he can't go in there, but his sins are getting taken care of. He wouldn't be able to go any further. He was done. His day at church, over he would be able to leave. But the process isn't over. You'll see uh, this basin of water 
the priest would now take over, and the priest is now about to go into the holy place, but the priest just offered a sacrifice, which means the priest would have blood on his hands, and so uh, he would need to actually ceremonially, but actually just logistically wash his hands and wash his feet in order to be pure enough to walk in. So then he would walk into this room, the priest would, and you'll notice there's basically three pieces of, I'll call them furniture, the table of showbread, 12 loaves of bread representing the 12 tribes, but even more than that, why is this in there? It was their way of recognizing God ordained, saying, I want you to do this, that he is the provider. You and I often forget this. We think our jobs are. We think that you and I show up, we get paychecks, and that we're our provider, and God is somewhere involved in that. Uh, they were reminding themselves, God was reminding them, I am your king. I make a way. The golden lampstand there would have been lit all the time, never going out. Most theologians believe representing the word of God being a light unto their path. Again, also theologians believe that the oil that would have kept that lit the entire time would represent the Holy Spirit. Further back, this table here, this altar of incense, representing the prayers of God's people going up to God's people. Listen, you never, ever were allowed in here because of the holiness of God. Right there's the high priest. I'm not sure that's exactly how he looked, uh, but one thing you would know if you were there, the edge of his robe, the hem of it would have had bells on it. He would be the only one allowed back there, the Holy of Holies. He'd only be allowed back there one day of the year called the Day of Atonement. So in order for him to go back there, he would have to do all that I shared with you. There would have to be a sacrifice. There would have to be forgiveness. He would have to be made holy so that he could enter what is behind there, uh, representing the presence of the Almighty God. Before he would go back there, they would tie a rope to his ankle or his waist that when he would go back there, if you heard the bells no longer ringing, they would drag him out because it meant that he didn't deal with his sin. And they would have to pull him out. That's the difference between back then and nowadays. We so casually approach God. The Holy of Holies, accessible one day of the week or one day of the year, there in this particular video game, they have this outside of the Ark of the Covenant, the Aaron's staff and the Ten Commandments, a bowl of manna. But there, I know it's difficult to see, but let me try to angle you. The Ark of the Covenant. Representing the very presence of God. There's examples in the Bible where they were carrying the Ark of the Covenant as they were supposed to, or not really, a little bit deviating, and it would tip over, and someone tried to keep it from tipping over. Good action, right? Nice. He was killed immediately because you could not touch the presence of God. The top of that being called the mercy seat. These angels hovering over. All of this to example how much God loves us. But are you worn out yet? I'm, I'm sparing some of the details for you. Because if they didn't put that together, remember, set up, tear down, set up, tear down. Hey, Bob, make sure you get those tent pegs put in there just right. And you, do you understand that if you didn't do it right, you died? 
all of it had to be set up absolutely perfectly. And then only certain people ordained by God could even access the tabernacle. And regularly, you were bringing the best of what you had to be slaughtered in front of you, not invested in some good nonprofit, not invested in some good deeds across this world, killed in front of you and burned to cover your sins. How casual have we become with accessing and going to God? And this sounds uh, very uh, old. Hey, David, I'm glad we don't have to do that. You're right, you're right, you're right. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. They would follow this model uh, from Moses all the way through King David. Eventually, King David's son Solomon would build what you and I would call the temple, the permanent building. No longer would they set up, tear down. They were in Jerusalem. And I, I'll take people to Israel, and we get to see portions of the old, old temple. You can actually go to this wall where you can see remnants of it, and you begin to have this moment, wow, this permanent structure. And if you know this, Jesus himself, Jesus would have worshipped. He would have gone to this temple. To bring you a little bit into next week, when Jesus shows up, and I'll walk you through when he gets beaten and crucified and put onto a cross, right? That whole moment. And what he does, you need to know that theologically and physically, Jesus is actually walking the way of the tabernacle that I just described to you. And for you and I to understand the grace of God, you got to understand what the folks in the old days had to go through. But this is not just Old Testament stuff. 1 Peter 1, but now you must be holy in everything you do, just as God who chose you is holy. This is like post-Jesus being here on earth. This is not like, well, that's Old Testament. We're not bound by the law. Not, yeah, okay, sure, you're not bound by the law. You're still bound by holiness. But now you must be holy in everything you do, just as God who chose you is holy. For the scriptures say, you must be holy because I am Holy. The question I've tried to get to, have you been casual about holiness? This should be a big deal to you. God made a way. Next week, I'll talk to you more about what Jesus has done for us. You'll begin to understand why Jesus is called the Lamb of God. You'll begin to understand why Scripture speaks of him being led to the slaughter. You'll begin to hopefully understand that the grace of God is so powerful because the love of God is so significant. But I'm going to tell you in our culture, one of the things that we have a problem with is we are casual about entering into a pure life of holiness with God. We've gotten it wrong so many times. We've thought, oh, I know how to be holy. We build a beautiful church building. When we enter, it's a holy, beautiful building. We thought it was about how we looked. You may have grown up in an era where it was all about how you dressed when you went to church, and you better wear your best, Sunday best. And then you came to a church, and the guy wears a flannel on stage. And you're like, this is messing messing with me. And I'm not suggesting that those were bad. I'm just saying you and I, generation after generation, have a tendency to lose sight of how to actually be holy. And if you want to know, if you have any interest in actually being with God forever and you want to be set apart, you want to be made pure, it begins with confession and repentance. It's how it's always been. If you read about Peter's early sermon, he would get up basically and say, hey, got a sermon for you repent and be baptized. 
It was about saying that I can't fix my holy problem, my unholy problem. I can't do that. I need God. So Jesus shows up, but, but many of us right now have let impurity enter our marriages. Impurity has entered the way we speak to each other, how we treat each other. Impurity has entered how we're actually engaging this world privately and publicly, how we lead our businesses, how we lead our families, how we lead our communities. We've, we've casually let God be this corner of a, maybe a Sunday morning or Tuesday night kind of service kind of a moment, and we're like, oh, that's fine, that's fine. No, God never removed that we should approach him in holiness. And how do you do that? You confess, you repent. It's not beautiful, is it? It's perhaps one of the most difficult things you'll ever do in your life to admit that you don't measure up. You aren't holy enough by yourself. You need God. Something is happening. Approximately 96 hours ago, four days ago, at a college in Kentucky, a regular chapel service at a Christian school if you ever been to a Christian school, you know there's chapel all the time, and they get really, really boring. You go to chapel enough, oh, you go to church enough, you begin to expect the same thing. They're going to do this and that and this and that. It was a regular Wednesday chapel. The sermon was about confession and repentance and the love of God. Chapel got over. It was dismissed. But some of the students felt gripped by the Holy Spirit that they needed to confess and worship a little bit more. So they stayed there and began to confess some more to God, to repent, and to worship. And for now, as much as I know, four straight days still going, they have not stopped worshiping. It's called a revival. Happening in the midst of lives of 18-year-olds and 19-year-olds and 20-year-olds. Then it's catching fire. There are people coming from all over to Kentucky just to experience it. Some of us, I know we're South Dakotans who are like, is it going crazy? Is it crazy? Is it crazy? No. There are people there that I trust that have witnessed it and documented it, and they go and they describe it as they don't know what's going on other than they go there and they feel the tangible presence of God. And it was not launched by the best sermon anyone had ever heard. It wasn't launched by the best music they had ever heard. It was launched by people going, you know what? We need God to forgive us. So here's how this sermon ends. I don't really know how the service is going to end. I think if you know that I love you enough, you should repent. You should confess to God what only perhaps you know. Perhaps it's bitterness, perhaps it's anger and hostility, perhaps it's mistreatment. Could be racism, bigotry, it could be stealing, it could be lust, how you've let it go out of bounds. I don't know what it is for you. It could be some substance that you have let take control. But I think the conclusion today should be not me just telling you, hey, I love you, I'm so glad that you came to church. The conclusion should be, you and I spend time with God. You confess and repent to him and say, God, I'm sorry. 
I need you and I want you in my life. And when you're done, you're welcome to leave. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to pray. And I'm going to say amen. But you can interpret that as dismissal. And you're welcome to go. (laughs) Or maybe you're going to need time with the Lord. Maybe you're going to need to come up front. Come up to the stage and just bow down and worship God and confess to him and repent. I can't wait to tell you about Jesus, but let's not go into that week casually. What you do with your soul matters to God. Let me pray for us. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Heavenly Father, we are about to speak to you, I think, in perhaps one of the most honest ways that we have, maybe ever. God, I've already told you today, but I'm going to tell you again. I'm sorry for this sin in my life. There have been moments that I have been prideful. I'm sorry. There have been moments that I've held grudges. I'm sorry. There have been moments that I have spoken unkindly to my kids and my bride. I'm sorry. God, would you lead each and every one of us in this moment? Help us to know what to speak to you and say to you. Meet with us, Lord. I pray this in the name of Jesus, our permanent solution. Amen. You are not more spiritual or less spiritual by the timing that you get up, okay? But when you're ready, you can go whenever that will be. But this space is available to you to have your time with God. I invite you to have your time with God and just meet with him.